Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Ian Bremmer, Eurasia Group founder and president, alongside Thomas Bubel, AXA CEO. So Thomas, talk to me about this report. What have we learned and what have you been working on with Eurasia Group? So we're doing this report uh, every year, which is basically asking many, many people around the world, what are the top risks? And um, since we feel that the risk landscape has changed, uh, we really wanted to have a partner that is also looking at uh, the geopolitical dimension. Because what you see is that the top risks remain the same. Climate, technology, geopolitical tensions. But what is new is that they are interlinked and that there is a very big geopolitical component to it, which makes uh, the combination of the two of us very interesting to understand these risks and see what can we do with them. Part of the risk is the financial risk. We've got the banks coming out right now in America. You have a massive sprawl of financial realities. And part of that is the actuarial assumption is coming down. All those liabilities you have out further are buttressed up against a low rate environment. How do you take the financial risks of this study in with the new actuarial assumption that's out there? The financial risk is very much linked to the third risk, which is the geopolitical risk. Because if you look at the social risk, if you look, the low interest rate drives the fragmentation of society. Since uh, um, it is all about uh, the retirement of people and how they can live going forward, um, this right. touches very much that topic. <clears throat> I mean, Ian, this is heart and center. I mean, the, the low economic growth, the low terminal values we have all comes back to populism and the social discontent you have in this report. No, I mean, it's not a happy report in the sense that we know that the geopolitical risks, the technological risks, and the climate risks are all at very elevated levels, but they're hitting at a time when the economy is starting to slow, really for the first time since the largest recession we've experienced in many decades. That that combination is going to make for a lot of crises, mostly inside countries, mostly making it harder for governments to respond effectively, right. but some and, across borders. And John, with Gita Gopanath yesterday, I just did a quick down the study of the IMF data. Only two countries have any kind of flat up vector, the United States and Spain. And other than that, it's a pretty ugly, synchronized growth slowdown. We'll take a look at Germany and Europe right now. It's arguably the weak economy, the weakest link in the Eurozone at the moment. And yields are just aggressively low. Thomas, speak to that for us. We have many people come on this program and talk about how low rates are a problem, negative yields are an issue. You run AXA. Just how much of an issue is this right now? No, it's, it's, a, it's a big issue for the whole industry. I mean, on our side as AXA, we have moved away uh, from financial risk quite uh, uh, early on. So about three, four years ago, we changed our portfolio from being 80% focused on financial markets to being 80% focused on technical risks. So uh, buildings, uh, health, protection, and so on. We are, less f we are less touched by it now. But when you look at the whole industry, uh, it's a massive issue for the industry, but also for the states. Because the reaction power of the Europeans, if you're talking about Europe, uh, towards a new crisis will be much lower than it used to be in 2008. Have you been able to lobby the European Central Bank at all? Have you had any discussions with policymakers? Have you given them your perspective on what you think the current monetary policy setting actually means for this business? 
Certainly, but uh, the issue is, to my mind, a different one. Um, the monetary policy is just a question of, um, do I give enough room and free space for the states to actually pursue structural reforms? What we see today is that uh, many of the European states have not pursued the structural reforms necessary, and therefore we come to an end of the monetary policy. Ian, within this is the geopolitics, and right now it's an uproar. We'll come back and talk about this in our next uh, section right now. Have you ever seen it like this? Are we just so benumbed that we, you know, it's this thing, this thing, this thing, this thing. Have you ever seen it like no, this? No, not in my lifetime. Uh, and it's, it, in part, it's because inside governments you have such polarization uh, that's really challenging the existing institutional framework of the uh, country uh, to so country. many country to country, but also because <clears throat> the U.S.-China relationship has hit a tipping point. I mean, we've had 25 plus years where we haven't had to worry about the basic geopolitical Agreed. fabric of the world. Well, what's, That's not true anymore. Your Meredith Sumter has been outstanding. What is her latest on John, I mean, I don't even know. Where, are we still in trade talks with China? Or is I, that, I believe we're still negotiating phase one. What does Meredith say about? No deal is one? no deal. Well, phase one, phase <clears throat> A, no yeah. deals happening. But more importantly than no deal happening, the Chinese going increasingly their own way on right. technology, on supply chain, on standards, right. recognizing <clears throat> that the future, irrespective yeah. of who the American president is, is going to be determined in their space by their rules. That's not a good place to be a global investor. We're going to come back with Ian Bremer and Thomas Burwell uh, here on our five things you need to know and really wrap it around their good research and report. But John. This is breaking news. The teenager, Harvey Elliott of Liverpool, banned 14 days, suspended outrage timeout chair for his impersonation of Mr. Kane of the Tots. Do you know who sponsors Liverpool? No, I don't. The gentleman sitting next to me. But I feel like you knew that already. I do that. Are we going to do this in the commercial break? Or are we doing this live in no, the next we're segment? No, we're doing live this in the next segment. live in the next segment. Allison Williams drops by in charge of all of banking analysis for Bloomberg. That's like a ginormous uh, job. And she is, joins us right now. 1962, Mad Men. And there it was, the beginning of an ad war of Hertz and Avis. My amateur take is J.P. Morgan is Hertz and Bank of America is Avis. What does Brian Moynihan need to do to competitively find the ratios, the stock performance, the financial excellence of his Hertz competitor. I think what he's showing is that he's getting there. He's getting right? there. So, so it's a, you know, so JP Morgan is, is executing at the top of all the banks. They have leading profitability, right? Um, they are leaders and across all their businesses. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, to your analogy, others, um, are sort of on the path, I think for bank of America, they, the, the positives this quarter were one expense, uh, progress and two market share gains. And that's, that's really what we're looking well, for in this environment because the revenue environment so certain execution. Certain. It, it looks like really solid execution. Exactly. Allison. Do you see it elsewhere? Um, we see it elsewhere in selective businesses. Um, so, um, you know, there were there were some uh, positives, I think, in Citigroup's quarter. But I think, you know, if you look at Citigroup and Wells, I think the disappointment there is on the cost side. 
And so, you know, both of those banks coming in a little higher than expected on costs and, you know, looking to the future, whereas we're seeing, you know, at Bank of America, it happening um, today, coming in below their guidance. Uh, JP Morgan yesterday also lowering their guidance on costs. And, you know, we talk about costs, we talk about branches, but, you know, to me, one of the interesting metrics that that shows us really what's happening is, um, you know, digital. We know that the cost of mobile banking is so much lower, and we're actually seeing an uptick in uh, digital growth at both Bank America and J.P. Okay, Morgan. You mentioned market share. And you're too young to remember this, but I remember when they combined and merged banks and they were regionally distinct and separate. Is the future of market share that Bank of America will compete with J.P. Morgan for the same geography in Ohio, or will they continue to partition out market share? I think that we are um, converging to broad coverage, right? So to your point, years ago, the way to get there was acquisition. The bank You bought Fleet Bank or exactly. whatever. Um, and especially Bank America has sort of a, a storied history of, of being built through um, acquisition. Uh, JP Morgan is sort of a, a couple of bigger combinations. Yeah, right? yeah, but, yeah. but anyway, I think in a way, uh, the tax gift to banks, if you will, was that um, with that announcement, we did get two major plans from J.P. Morgan Bank America saying, look, we're looking at what markets are we not in? What markets are we going in? And they're going into that market. Um, and I think, you know, what's telling is our regional bank analyst saying that he is seeing uh, share accruing to these bigger banks. Alison, just a final question on what is happening with the rate sensitivity of some of these banks. Many of them were looking for two rate cuts this year. So far, that's what we've had. We may well have more. How are the businesses holding up? What do the net interest margins look like? What does net interest income look like? So that was, again, another story of Bank America that was holding up more positive. And I think what we're seeing uh, for Bank America and uh, JP Morgan as well is as we're seeing a pickup on the consumer side of things, those are higher yielding assets. Um, also, uh, they tend to have a different uh, sensitivity to rates, if you will. And so that is really helping the net interest margins and net interest income hold up better. The fact that we're uh, getting better consumer loan growth. So when Tom puts his rent on his credit card at the end of each month, his interest rates aren't going down. That's essentially it, Tom. Are they still high? Your interest yeah. rate at the end of the month is still high on your credit card? Yeah, it's like ginor- I mean, it's like wicked ginormous. Is it a record high now? Is that safe to say? Uh, I don't believe, actually, it's it's a record high. I'll have to look and circle back with you. Right. But what I would say is that when you look at those prices, they're inelastic, right? So yeah. even if they're not, uh, you know, not his, historic high versus their own history, they're certainly <clears throat> the highest across right. products. And as rates go up and down, you'll get things like commercial loans repricing immediately, yeah. you know, very uh, closely whereas the card is much more inelastic. Quick question, is operating income in the middle of the income statement, do you see that growth continuing forward? The last five years recovery has been extraordinary, but does it still for these major banks continue to grow, grow, grow? It should still continue to grow. The one question that we have, the one thing that would interrupt it uh, relates to credit costs. Credit is solid. We barely even touch on it um, over the last few earnings report Mm -hmm. because it's been such a great story. Um, but, you know, a recession is coming one day. Um, and at that point, well, we're going to have to see 
you know, I guess, how long out is it and how severe? Alison Williams, always great to get your insight. Bloomberg Intelligence's senior analyst on the U.S. banks as we get more bank earnings from the United States of America over the last 24 hours and the next 24 hours too. Bank of America up in the pre-market, Tom, by a little more than two percentage points. Tom Keen and John Farrow, we now celebrate a new book out there. All of you know that listen to me every day, my joy of the Leader's Bookshelf. Uh, James Trevitas from four, five, six years ago. It was my book of the year at the time. Within it, packed from generals, from admirals, are 40, 50, even 60 books you should read. If you read 10 of them, you're a changed person. The Admiral now has outdone himself, James Trevitas, on Sailing True North, 10 Admirals and the Voyage of Character. It reminded me so much, Jim, of Eric Larrabee's Commander-in-Chief, his wonderful book on FDR in all of his generals. But you take the admirals over time. You begin long ago and far away. How far back do you need to go to find an admiral of character? I think to really uh, survey the seascape time, you've really got to go back over 2,000 years ago, and you have to go to the ancient Greeks and the Battle of Salamis, where the Greeks turned back the Persian invaders in a massive sea battle, and the admiral's name was Themistocles. You bring it forward, and let's go right to where Larrabee was in World War II, the extraordinary Nimitz. Full disclosure, Nimitz was worshipped in my house. Let's begin with what Nimitz wrought with Spruance and the others after the debris of Pearl Harbor. The thing to understand about Chester Nimitz is his incredible resilience, which springs from deep reserves of character. Here's a man who has labored his way up the career ladder, finally gets the call to take command of the most powerful military instrument on the planet, the Pacific Fleet of the United States. Yet the day he takes command, Tom, as you know, the fleet is smoking ruin in front of him in Pearl Harbor, the beautiful battleships sunk. The carriers are on the move out at sea to avoid the Japanese. He's forced to take command on the deck of a diesel submarine, a tiny little diesel. Unbelievable. He's not wearing wearing those beautiful choker whites. He's wearing rumpled khakis. He squares his shoulders builds a team, and takes on the Japanese Empire. James Trevitas, and we celebrate with the Admiral sailing true north. Let me bring in Captain Farrow. Did you call the Admiral Jim? Are we allowed to call the Admiral Jim? <laughs> he and I, I the, the, the royalty checks I've gotten from Seriously, Admiral, can we, can we call you Jim? Can I just clean this up? Because he never really asks. Is it okay to yeah. call you Jim? We're going to call you Jim. He's also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist now. Yes. I didn't know that. And you've wrote, written a really interesting piece, Jim, recently, A Survivor's Guide to Testifying in Congress. And I imagine there might be some people in Washington, D.C. that need to read that. So walk me through what your story is. And the, the latest Bloomberg Opinion piece, um, it's about character and about the need for those who are facing a very a, a very changing moment in their lives. They're uh, being called to testify in front of Congress. And they have to follow the truth without fear or favor wherever it goes. And some of these people will meet that challenge and some of them will not. We'll know so much more as a result of this 
unfolds in front of us. But what we're seeing is a test right. of character. Uh, the line, uh, Admiral Stravitas, in sailing true north is to sail true east across the Mediterranean <laughs> to where there's a Russian Navy at the end of the Mediterranean. The Navy has nothing to do with Turkey and Syria, and yet it's got everything to do with Turkey and Syria. Tell me, first of all, about the Russian Navy at, at, at the, at, in Syria. Uh, is it Lataki? Is that correct? It is. This is one of the ports on uh, the Syrian coast. But this, uh, this portion of the Russian Navy, Tom, as I think you know, comes down from the Black Sea. They have long had <clears throat> ambitions to dominate the yeah. eastern Mediterranean. They are launching cruise missiles ashore. They have Marines ashore, just like we send our Marines ashore. They provide air defense. They are part of the logistics chain that moves supplies to the Russian forces. They are very much integral to what is happening in Syria today. How How is our Navy responding to this? I mean, do we show the flag through the Bosphorus? I mean, folks, this is ancient stuff. This is like Crimean War, 1856. Admiral Stavitas, how does our Navy respond to showing the flag after the events of the last 14 days? We are deploying a carrier battle group, uh, which is an aircraft carrier and half a dozen ships through that eastern Mediterranean. Some of those ships, the destroyers, will break off and go through the Bosphorus into the Black Sea. As you know, aircraft carriers are not permitted to do so under the Montreux Convention. So we'll send those smaller destroyers into the Black Sea, show a force. We will be surveilling the Russian fleet off the coast. We'll be operating with our allies, partners, and friends. This is really a NATO mission. The Mediterranean is our largest maritime border to the south. So in all right. those ways, Tom, we'll continue to be very engaged from the sea in this Syrian crisis. What is the damage to our Pentagon by what we have seen from mm-hmm. President Trump, or is that overwrought by a media uh, not without a proclivity to President Trump? Is there tangible damage to the mm-hmm. Pentagon? I think there is, unfortunately. And and let's face it, in terms of uh, damage to the president, this is a subject upon which you have agreement between Bernie Sanders and Lindsey Graham, between Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi. This is not the uh, left wing of the Democratic Party coming after President Trump. This is a failure of American foreign policy. And it's uh, pretty clearly understood that walking away from our allies in a scenario like this will have long-term consequences. I mean, how do we walk this back? And I say this, folks, with great respect for, say, Cyprus, where the Turks and the Greeks for any number of time over 300 years have been able to walk back the tensions to some form of uh, peace. I know they did this, uh, Admiral, I believe in the 1980s uh, to good effect with Mr. Papadreou. Uh, but, but how do we walk back the damage that you perceive in the last number of days? I would say we begin by trying to uh, reestablish U.S. engagement in this crisis. And here I commend the Trump administration. Tomorrow to Ankara go the vice president and the secretary of state. Uh, The Turks appreciate that kind of high-level delegation. That may help. Secondly, we use the NATO alliance. Turkey values its membership in the NATO alliance. They don't want to damage their standing in the alliance. So we need all of the NATO nations to contribute Mm -hmm. to putting pressure on Turkey. And third and finally, Tom, I think at this point, economic Mm -hmm. sanctions plus keep a residual force, at least in southern Syria, and see if we can 
get to a ceasefire and move forward. With the events, I'm sorry that we did not focus completely on Sailing True North. We'll have Admiral James <laughs> Trevitas on with us again. I really can't say enough of uh, this. If there's one book that must be a required read out of is the leader's bookshelf is Larrabee's commander in chief on the fractious generals that FDR had to stare down uh, with general Marshall and general Eisenhower at times in that Admiral drives forward that conversation with 10 admirals and the voyage of character sailing uh, true North. Uh, and we look forward to a further conversation on this with uh, Bloomberg opinion columnist, James uh, Stravitas. This is a joy. It has been far too long. We have to wait for him to wander out with a new book, and he's not writing, you know. It's not Nancy Drew. Right. He's, not, <laughs> he's not writing every six months. To back up, more than a decade ago, a guy named Bennett Golub, who's got a shingle out at BlackRock, I believe, still, and Leo Tillman wrote a book, Risk Management, which absolutely changed how we approach risk in the thinking of risk, the intelligence of risk. It was hugely mathy. Paul, I would go over every coefficient and go, <laughs> can they add any more Greek letters to this equation? Right. Mr. Tillman has gone on to a, a storied career in consulting to companies on how to execute all the 60,000 foot mumbo jumbo everybody talks about. With General Charles Jacoby, he has written Agility, how to navigate the unknown and seize opportunity in a world of disruption. Leo, it's another boring book on leadership, but what's great about it is you overlay it with this strange thing called execution. How do, congratulations on agility, how do you execute all the fancy stuff all these consultants talk about? Well, first of all, it's such a pleasure to be here. Uh, as you said, we, the, our conversations on these subjects go back decades. And this is the latest thinking on what it takes to adapt to changing environments, adapting in terms of economic cycles, in terms of risk, etc. So when you think about agility, we define it as a three-step process that is applicable to every company, every investor. Detect, assess, and respond to change. So when you talk about execution, it's about response. And that response has to be well thought out. And the company needs to be unified around a common objective. And then everybody needs okay. to be part of the same team. And you've got a military feel to this with General Jacoba. You end the book with the leadership at Normandy and what it took to create organization at that hellacious moment. That's not the drama of corporate America. But the reality of corporate America is everybody talks the talk but nobody does the doing which you're acclaimed for. How do you get from the talk to the doing in agility and leadership? Well, amazingly enough, invasion of Normandy was a combination of both strategic and tactical agility because by the time the D-Day came around, there were many years of preparation and planning and vision. So first part of it belongs to executives and boards of directors. What is your vision for this environment? What is your planning for this environment? And then when the execution comes, you need to make sure that your entire organization is empowered, that they unified around the same purpose, and they're all rowing in the same direction. So Normandy is one of the most unbelievable examples where that combination, strategic agility, strategic top-down planning and vision, 
come together with decentralized execution. So Leo, are there certain industries that lend themselves to being agile versus maybe not so agile? Well, look, we wrote the book that is applicable to any organization. Okay. We truly believe that this combination of strategic and tactical agility must be practiced and adapted at any organization that wants to thrive or even survive in this environment. Now, different components of it apply to different organizations. For instance, for smaller entrepreneurial companies, it's the strategic agility that matters most. It's their ability to detect what's going on in the environment and quickly change. But for established companies, tactical agility, the ability of the entire organization to watch what's going on in the environment and innovate and improvise, that's important. So the, the, the proportion changes, but the principles remain the same. And it seems like technology has brought about this whole concept of disruption. Tom and I hear it all the time when these new companies come public, they're disrupting this business or disrupting that business. Um, it would just seem like more so now, technology makes agility on the part of a corporation much more critical than it's ever been. Absolutely, and, and not only that, but technology works both ways. We go all the way back to Clausewitz's uh, fog and friction by describing the environment. So on the one hand, technology helps us penetrate the uncertainty and ambiguity of this environment. On the other hand, technology enables our adversaries to really disrupt our plans, both in terms of intel intelligence gathering and in terms of our businesses. So it goes both ways. Yeah. No, I don't mean to cut you off. I, 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 I just wanna say Leo Tillman with us. Uh, the book is Agility. It's wonderfully brief, but in its density, really, really interesting on this. How's it changed generationally? How's it changed when you overlay agility within a small business or a giant Fortune 100 company you got to deal with a lot of young people that have a different tone. Many of them have only lived the financial crisis in terms of their business careers. How do you do agility with suspect millennials and those a little bit older? So first of all, the ideas of agility go back to Napoleon and Clausewitz. They're 200 years old, uh, all about how you empower organizations across cultures, across time. So that's one general theme that these are timeless lessons and timeless principles. On the other hand, U.S. Army and U.S. Armed Forces present a great example of how you take people from all walks of life, and educate them of what it means to have these common values and unify them around these common values. So I think the experience of U.S. Army in creating cultures that last is a great example of how you can take many different generations across different cultures and backgrounds and unify them around what yeah. Bill George calls true north. Let's, let's come back. Well, and, and uh, uh, we, we, we've had Bill George on any number of times. Let's come back with Leo uh, Tillman. We're thrilled he can stay around with us. The book is Agility. Uh, it's, it's just the right, it's airplane size. You know? It's airplane size. It's airplane size. It's actually, yeah, I mean, this is a, I can rip through this one over a weekend. 170 Perfect. with some great, the thing I love about it is it's an awful lot about execution. Yes. Not, not, you know, the, the industry babble, but like the to-do as well. Right. We're going to come back with Leah Tillman. I want to talk to him, take him back to risk management, a classic uh, from 10 years ago or so, and talk to him about uh, how we're managing risk within the new fixed income space of negative interest rates. Did you know what a negative interest rate was <laughs> when you and I first met? 
No, no, no and they were considered and they were considered to be theoretically impossible. So <laughs> you got yes, that right. That's how that's how long we have been around. This is going to be a treat for Global Wall Street. Leo Tillman on the theoretical impossibility of negative interest rates. We'll do that here uh, in a bit. So we are right in the middle of the investment banks kind of rolling out their numbers. Yesterday was just a ridiculous day. I seems like a everybody plethora. a plethora. plethora. Okay, and today we have Bank of America a little bit, uh, a little bit more reasonable for the bank investors and bank reporters out there, including Shanali Basu, who covers uh, all things financial for Bloomberg News. So Shanali, let's step away just a little bit. We were talking here about global Wall Street and you know how some of these companies are adapting. What's is there a key takeaway we have for? global Wall Street, given all the results we've seen over the last 24 hours? Maybe it's just because in my mind, because Tom was talking about it, but why does Goldman Sachs now want to be a consumer bank? It lowers your funding costs, right? right. You're going into an interest rate environment that is continuing to be very low, which is very unfortunate for banks that make their money off of net interest income. And so we're seeing a new normal here where Bank of America makes $12 billion a quarter uh, and w with pressure on interest rates is, you know, that's, that's the most of their income, right? And so if they don't make money from interest rates, where else do you get it from, right? Um, for Bank of America, they got very lucky for investment banking fees. Big ticket deals are lower now. The really big mergers don't want to don't want to go through for regulatory reasons or whatnot, but that doesn't right. mean smaller firms aren't merging. I, I just popped in my head. Let's look forward. How big a deal is Aramco? I mean, the, <laughs> the media makes a big deal about a big fat fee. Oh. But does it actually move the needle for these major banks? Yes, whether or not it happens, actually. Because the thing about it is, you know, the American consumer, fine, you're, they're healthy and they're driving costs forward. But all of these banks want to be global. All of the European banks are struggling. Bank of America, yeah, Goldman, they want to be... Did you learn that profit is global? I mean, I mean, their yes. global banking is profitable? You know, it's not even just that... Uh, <laughs> it's not even just about making money from one deal. Saudi Arabia, okay. PIF... They deploy money here. They're in SoftBank. Okay. They're in Uber. They're we, in WeWork. We told Leo. Leo can't talk math. Leo can't talk math to me. Do you have a question for Ms. Basic? Well, it's a question and and a, and a comment. Please. Um, the funding costs are super important, of yes. course. Um, but going back to our discussion on Goldman, it's also a question of a business model. How do you compete? Do you compete on ideas as a standalone investment bank? Mm -hmm. Or do you bring in a huge balance sheet mm -hmm. and compete on that? So, so, so I think the, the bigger question you is that. You are asking my favorite question because <laughs> okay, every good. banker on Wall Street believes that they are the most important thing that exists to their bank and that you can win on ideas. What did you learn in the Goldman Sachs conference call to Mr. Tillman's comments? Well, their investment banking revenue is not winning. So obviously the greatest minds in the world are not raking it in. <laughs> is, is, so, is the Goldman Sachs of Lloyd Blankfein gone? Yes. And what's replaced it, do you think? So they're... Robots? Well, <laughs> uh, they're trying to figure it out. I mean, what um, Leo is just bringing up here is that can you win on ideas, old school advisory, advising somebody on how to do a big merger or raise more money. But what they're trying to do, you're right, is bring in more technology that will appeal to the American consumer, make a digital bank, have people own a fancy Apple card. And is that going to be enough? We don't know. The market's not buying Leo, it quite yet. So, uh, again, reminding of how old we all are. It was why back, are you looking at me? It was, <laughs> I am not looking at you at all. I'm looking in the mirror. Um, 
back in the mid-2000s. I will never forget a uh, annual report from Goldman Sachs that said something like this. You can never win on ideas anymore. You have to be simultaneously an advisor, co-investor, and financier okay. going all the way back. This is great. When you sell the movie rights to Agility, we're going to have you back with Ms. Basic, and we can do this has been a great conversation. Seriously, this has been a great conversation. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.